All right, so let's catch up a little bit from where we left off because you have to have the context right. All right, so last week, um, Hezekiah is in a jam, to say the least, because he's surrounded by uh, the Assyrian army. And the population of Jerusalem is about 10,000 people. It is a tiny little dot. Jerusalem is not... Uh, when you read the Bible, it would seem that Ju Jerusalem was a very significant place because it's very significant in Bible history. But it is not significant in the world at this time. So here's this little city of 10,000 surrounded by an army of 250,000. So you get the picture of the desperation of the moment that we dealt with last week as Sennacherib and his men have uh, basically wiped everything out on their way to Jerusalem. So if you look on your handout in 2 Kings 19, when they come and they start mocking the people of God, the Assyrians say, look, you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all the lands by utterly destroying them, and you think you'll be delivered. What has happened? Where are the gods of the nations? Have they been delivered by their gods whom, the father, whom my fathers have destroyed? And then he lists, starts listing all these nations. And so there was dozens and dozens of people that had been wiped out in the process of the Assyrians moving to Jerusalem. So you're talking about the world superpower in Assyria. Okay? So then, in 2 Kings 19.15, then Hezekiah facing 250,000 men and just insurmountable odds, prays to the Lord, O Lord God of Israel, the one who dwells between the cherubim. You are God, you alone, and all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. And hear the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to to reproach the living God. Truly, Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste to the nations in their lands and have cast their gods into the fire. For they were not gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore, they destroyed them. Now, therefore, O God, our God, I pray, save us from this hand that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you are the Lord God, you alone. So that amazing prayer that Hezekiah prays. And just like Pastor Matt said multiple times, Hezekiah was a great king, second only to David. Um, <clears throat> and what we said was, this came right off of last week's handout, he didn't seek personal gain, but he was more concerned with God's reputation. And so therefore, you, we can learn from this prayer. And this is going to be important information as we push forward tonight. The way that Hezekiah, he was not looking out for his own well-being, but he was, he knew that the God that he served was a God of glory and a God who is about his glory. And so when he prayed, he prayed in accordance with what he knew to be the will of God and amazing things happened. Now with regards to prayer... If all we ever do is seek God's hand, then we'll miss His face. And if we seek His face, 
then he'll be glad to open his hand and satisfy the deepest desires of our hearts. Oftentimes, we are only concerned about the hand of God when we should be concerned about the face of God. If we get the face of God, the hand of God will open. And we'll talk a lot more about that in a few minutes. And so then this amazing verse in verse 20, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. He says, your prayer to me about Sennacherib, king of Assyria, I have heard. What a remarkable truth. I have heard. God hears the prayer of Hezekiah. And so, then one of my favorite passages in all the Bible, verse 35, And it came to pass on a certain night that an angel, angel of the Lord went out and killed in the camp of the Assyrians 185,000. And when the people arose early in the morning, there were the corpses all dead, as if corpses could not be all dead. Just a little exclamation point. So it was this, the greatest military battle that was never fought and the principle we built this on last week was impossible is where God works the best and so we saw how Hezekiah gives us some principles some foundational realities about understanding the character and nature of God and how he responds to his people and God loves and delights to, God works most often in ways that we cannot. Because he wants to distinguish his work apart from ours. He wants it to be blatantly obvious that he's the one that's done this. Does that make sense? And so therefore... Impossible is where he works the best. That's his nature. That's his character. That's what he does. Because, again, everything about God is always about his glory. Now, with regards to prayer, we should understand prayer is intimacy with God that leads to the fulfillment of his purposes. Because all of this information sets us up for what happens in 2 Kings 20. Hezekiah could be confident when he came to God because he had confidence in the purposes of God. And you see, so in your life and in my life, when we know that what's at issue is God's glory then you can, you can just be bold and confident as anything about that petition, that request, that conversation that you're having with God because God is about His glory. And so anytime there's opportunity for God to get glory, then, uh, you know, that should be... I mean, we should pray about everything. I'm just saying the giant neon light that's saying, hey, pray about this are the things that you encounter that if God were to move in, He would get maximum glory. Those are things that you should be uh, 
extra keenly aware of. All right, 2 Kings 20. This is where we'll spend our time tonight. In those days, Hezekiah was sick and near death. And Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, went to him and said to him, Thus says the Lord, set your house in order, for you shall die and not live. Well, that's a great Hallmark card you want to get from God, right? Now, first of all, I want you to understand, when the Bible says, in those days, this isn't talking about after everything I just said in 2 Kings 19. This is, these events that we're about to talk about are actually prior to all of the things that we just talked about. Now, don't get confused. It's just the method by which the Scripture is giving us the information. It's not uh, chronologically delivered, and you'll see that very obviously in a moment. But the point is, is that here is this great king, this great man of faith, and now he has found out that he's going to die. He got sick, really sick, and then Isaiah the prophet comes to him and says, Bro, you need to get your house in order. That means... It's not going good. You're going to die. Get everything straight. Now, I want you to just think for a moment about how you would respond to this. If you found out tonight, if you were told tonight that you needed to get your house in order, what would be your response? And I think if we're honest, I think a lot of people would have a tendency to respond in anger, frustration, maybe just uh, numbness or despair. Maybe some people would respond, well, that's it. I'm going to die. What difference does it make? You know, at this point, it's over. I'm going to die. That's the way it's going to be. I think that all of us would like to think that we would maybe respond in a spiritual way, but I don't, I don't think that's true. I think a lot of people, a lot of Christians would respond in anger and frustration. And your first sort of go-to or even you know, your, your heart's inclination would not be to seek God in prayer. Now, I want you to understand the gravity of this death sentence. This is a man who's 39 years old. He's 39. Which there was a lot of time in my life where I would have thought that was old. But I don't feel that way anymore. Now, 
This is also important information in a few moments. He's in the 14th year of his reign. Because what we found out when we started studying Hezekiah is that he reigned for 29 years. And so he's been king for 14 years. So how does he respond to this death sentence? Verse 2. Then he turned his face towards the wall. And he prayed to the Lord saying, Remember now, O Lord. I pray how I have walked before you in truth and with a loyal heart and have done what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. And it happened before Isaiah had gone out into the middle court that the word of the Lord came to him saying, Return and tell Hezekiah, the leader of my people, Thus says the Lord, the God of David, your father, I have heard your prayer, and I have seen your tears. Surely I will heal you. On the third day, you shall go up to the house of the Lord, and I will add to your days 15 years. I will deliver you in this city from the hand of the king of Assyria. You see, I told you this was in a reverse order. You see? So the angel of the Lord has yet to kill the 185,000. And I will defend this city for my own sake, And for the sake of my servant David. So what Hezekiah does is he responds with great emotion. He weeps bitterly. Which kind of catches me a little bit off guard. You know, based on the way Hezekiah has handled himself up to this point. Not the fact that I think there's anything wrong with weeping bitterly. Um, I think that's perfectly understandable. But what he prays is very different than what we have seen him do in the past. And so here he's reminding God of his faithfulness. And he's letting God know the things that he's accomplished on his behalf. God responds. Isaiah's not even out of the building. He's halfway walking through the palace, stops, turns around, comes back. And tells him the good news. Now the principle here is that God is listening. He's listening. He's listening to everything that's going on in your life and my life. He hears and he's paying attention. He listens to what you say. He listens to what the people around you say. He listens to the things that you say in your head that never come out of your mouth. The conversations that you, yourself, and I have... He listens to those as well. He knows those thoughts. He hears them. And so he's listening. Now, that should be really encouraging. But it's not necessarily encouraging. But it should be. But either whether it's encouraging or not, it's a reality. God is listening. So the question is, are we asking? That's the question. See, God's listening. Well, what is God hearing? What is He hearing when He's listening? He's listening to your conversations. He hears you talking on the phone. He hears you talking to your kids. He hears you talking to your spouse. He hears you talking to yourself. When you're driving to work and it's just you and you're having this big conversation. He hears all that. He knows all that. He's aware of all that. 
And so are you asking? And if you're asking, then well, well, what are you asking for? What I want you to see in Hezekiah's response to this information that he's going to die is that I don't think he handles it in, in the super, ultra, spiritual, perfect way. But he does the right thing. He turns to God and he cries out to God. And he is uh, and he's in a state of desperation. And God hears that. And God not only says, I hear the things that you've said, but God also says, I've seen what? Your tears. I've seen them. He's watching. Just like we talked about Sunday morning. Everywhere we go and everything we do, he not only hears, but he sees. And so he knows. He knows the tears that fall from your face. He knows the burdens that you carry in your heart. And I just wonder if that tendency for so many people, and, and here's why I would say, okay, because maybe some of you are like, I just, you know, where do you get this? You know, if I find out I was going to die, would I turn to God or would I turn to anger and bitterness? Or, Well, because the most common response that I see to tragic news is a withdrawal from God. That's the most common response that I see. You see people in great pain pull away. They do the exact opposite of what they ought to do. They pull away. And what that tells me is that you have created a pattern in your life of not asking. There are certain people in your life that you ask things of all the time. Maybe it's, you know, you're, maybe you're a mom and so you're, you, uh, you know, you have a teenage you have teenage boys at the house, and so it's very common for you to say, hey, take the trash out. Hey, mow the grass. Hey, right? Or you're a parent, or you say, or you're whatever. You're a, a teacher, and you're used to asking things of your students, or you're a spouse, and you're used to whatever. You're used to asking things of people. And there are people in your life that you ask things of all the time, and it's very normal and common, and you don't think anything of it. And so it just comes natural. You see a need, you ask them. Right? And then there's other people. So in other words, you might be very comfortable saying, hey, telling your teenage boy, take the trash out because you do that all the time. But then if, some, if you have a guest over to at your house and you open the trash can and it's stuffed, you, you don't look at them and say, hey, would you take the trash out? You don't do that. And what I'm saying is, is that when you have developed a pattern of comfort of asking a particular person or group of people or a setting where you feel comfortable asking, 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 then it just comes natural. When you see a need, you don't even think about it. It just goes. And it's the same way with God. You show me a person 
whose first instinct is to immediately turn and cry out to God, that's a person who's developed a pattern in their life of asking. They don't have to think about it. They ask. They pray. But here's what happens. When you you have a, a very slothful prayer life and an atomic bomb of circumstances blows up in your life, then you're standing there bewildered trying to figure out what to do. But if you constantly are communicating with God and asking God for things, and it's the most natural thing for you to do is turn to God and ask Him for help, then what do you think is going to happen when a bomb blows up in your life? You see? So again, I say, the most common response I see to tragic situations, especially um, especially I was thinking about this last week during the message because I knew what was coming. Especially when it comes to injustice. That tells me pathetic things about the spiritual discipline of prayer in that person's life. You pull away from God. The Bible says in James chapter 4, Yet you do not have. Why? Because you don't ask. You ask and you don't receive. Because you ask amiss. So it's not just a blanket asking, is it? No. But when you ask that you may spend it on your pleasures, well, then you're not, that, it doesn't work like that, does it? But when you ask in accordance with God's purpose, just like I said, when you have an intimate relationship with God, notice that when I'm talking about prayer in this context, I'm talking about intimacy. That's why I defined prayer the way I defined it. Intimacy. That that intimacy is what yields an understanding of the purposes of God that develops a prayer life by which you know how to ask because you know the purposes of God. So here's the question, or a question. Would God have given Hezekiah 15 years if he didn't ask? And I would say no. That doesn't mean that God couldn't. It doesn't mean that he wouldn't. I just don't think he would. He could. You know, this, this is, I almost put out, you know, in, in parentheses right here, you know, my opinion. Because it is. But I just want you to think about this. He asks, and he receives 15 years. If he wouldn't have asked, he wouldn't have received 15 years. So that means... That if he wouldn't have asked, he wouldn't have received 15 years, which means all the stuff that Matt talked about last week would have never happened because he would have died. Right? So, you ready to get a headache? Let's, let's, 
trace this rabbit for a second. So God's sovereign. So when I say that he wouldn't have gotten 15 years if he wouldn't have asked, I believe that to be true. But that doesn't negate the fact that God knew that he was going to ask. But it also is true that God didn't force him to ask. You got that? And you have to understand that for this to make sense. Otherwise, the sovereignty of God just becomes a big problem for you. You see, you can't use the sovereignty of God to blame things. God just is sovereign. That's just the way it is. But if you make a bad decision, that's not the sovereignty of God. That's your stupidity. You look kind of confused. So, all right, well, we'll, we'll get to it in a minute. But here's what I, I want you to see, okay? I want us to just focus for a moment on the fact that he asked, and I want us to consider what the Bible says about that. And so I often wonder how many opportunities are missed by God's people simply because they don't ask. They just don't ask. And the thing about it is, is that God's sovereignly working in the situation, but He also sovereignly knows that you're not going to ask. And so what happens is if you spend all your time thinking about um, God's sovereignty in your situations, I think it can, I mean... Obviously, I want you to know that God is sovereign, but here's what I want you to I want you to know that you have responsibility. First John 5. Now, this is the confidence that we have in Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. You see? So we need to develop an intimate relationship with God. Thereby, in the context of that relationship, we pray in accordance with what we know to be true about God, which is what we learn by spending time with Him in His Word. I mean, didn't I just talk two weeks ago about 3,000 promises in Scripture? So if there's 3,000 promises in Scripture then pretty much on every page of the Bible, there's an opportunity for you to pray in accordance with God's will. Right there. That's just one simple example. So he does that. God gives him 15 years. Verse 7, Then Isaiah said, Take a lump of figs, because that would be what I would think of. So they took and they laid it on the boil. So apparently, you know, he was dying of a big nasty boil, and he recovered. Now, why does the Bible say this? Why is this so important in this whole conversation about understanding prayer and understanding God? What we're about to talk about for the next five minutes is, is an example of this is what you, when you learn about God. 
Just like when you learn about a person, you spend time with them, you get to know them, you know their ways, you know their tendencies, you know their likes, you know their dislikes. So the more time you spend with them, the more time you feel like you can almost finish their sentences or you know how they're going to feel about something or whatever the case may be, right? Well, it's the same way with God. Now, here's a perfect example. If you know God and you walk with God, when you get to the point where it says, take a lump of figs, and so they did it, and they put it on the boiling recovered, you would immediately know why this is there. Immediately. This would make perfect sense to you. And you wouldn't just read it as information. You would stop, and you would look at this, and you would go, and you wouldn't even have to know any of the details I'm about to tell you about this to know that this is the character of God. So in ancient times, but I'm sure some of you, your grandmother or great-grandparents, they, I mean, there's a, a, a lot of people who in a previous generation would know that if you had a giant boil to get a fig and smash it and put it on that boil. I couldn't remember what there's some weird word that they use. It's a fig something. And I couldn't remember, but I've heard, I've heard senior adults say it before where they would take a compress and mash the fig into it and put it on. Because, you know, I'm fascinated by all these weird things that we used to do. So figs were used as medicine. They were common medicine, common in the Bible. And all through uh, not only ancient Israel, but in all the different countries, figs were used. They They have medicinal properties. More than just the one we use them for today. Uh, So, here's what I want you to see. Now, God says, I'm going to heal him. He tells Isaiah, go tell him I'm going to heal him, and I'm going to give him 15 extra years, right? Now, God can just snap his fingers and it's done. right? He doesn't need figs. But he uses them. And we should know this. That these practical, ordinary things provide opportunities to obey. All the time. This happens in your life all the time. Don't miss it. It's the little, simple, practical things that give opportunity to obey all the time. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to remind you of a New Testament illustration of the exact same thing. And there's a bunch of them. But in Luke chapter 17, you know the story where the, Jesus encounters the ten lepers? Let me read this to you. So he sees them, and Jesus said to them, Go, show yourself to the priests. And so it was that as they went, They were cleansed. Okay? You got ten men with leprosy. Jesus says to all ten of them, go show yourself to the priest. So they take off and they start running towards the priest. And the Bible says, as they went, they were healed. And then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, he returned and with a loud voice glorified God. And he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks 
He was a Samaritan. And Jesus said to him, were there not ten cleansed? So remember, there was ten. They all got healed as they ran towards the priest. One stops midstream, turns around, and goes back to Jesus. The other nine keep on booking. Okay? Jesus says, were there not ten cleansed? Well, where are the nine? And of course, he knows the answer. He's just asking it. Were there not any found who returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? And then he said to him, Arise, go your way. Your faith has made you well. Now, Jesus walks up to ten lepers. He could have very easily just went, boom, you're, you're cleansed. Remember, Jesus multiple times in the New Testament, heals people and doesn't even go to where they are. He just goes, yeah, I healed them. Go check it out. Right? So he doesn't need any help or any. He doesn't have to do anything. But he tells them to go show themselves to the priest. Why? It's a simple, practical opportunity to obey. Why? Because you were unclean and you had to stay 50 feet away from everybody and say unclean unclean and you couldn't if you let somebody get close to you and you didn't say unclean unclean you got killed for doing that for exposing people right so the only way they could go back to visit their family the only way they could go back to normal life is they had to go to the priest and get a clean bill of health so then they could go back into just because they did all their their legions on their skin were gone doesn't mean they were still, you know, they still didn't have the uh, COVID card, okay? So the natural thing to do is show yourself to the priest. And so Jesus tells them to do the natural, ordinary thing. And as they're obeying him, healing comes. But here's the thing. How many of the ten got cleansed of leprosy? It's not a trick. Ten. But how many of the ten got healed of sin? One. And what you see here is an exact illustration of how God always uses, all throughout the Scripture, He uses... Ordinary things all the time as opportunities for us to obey. And so, I really think that that should be something that should just, uh, you know, put a check in your spirit to, to realize and pay attention that so oftentimes, you know, we're trying to get to this end. You know, we're trying to get to this conclusion or this whatever, resolution or whatever it is. And we're so fixated on that and we can't get there. And the reason is because we're not walking in obedience in the simple, ordinary, practical things that are right in front of us. Obedience always reveals or grows or both faith. Always. Right? It always does. Obedience is always, and if, how do you know, according to the Bible, how do you know that faith exists in a person's life? Obedience, apart from obedience, it's invisible. You can't see it. 
So whenever the Bible says, well, you'll know a tree by its, a tree by its fruit, well, what does that mean? Well, it's obedience. It's always obedience. Obedience makes faith visible. So don't you think that God will use everything and anything to grow or to give or build faith? Yes, all the time. So they put figs. And again, is God sovereign? Yes. What if Hezekiah would have said, I ain't putting that fig on. I hate figs. He'd be dead. That's what I think. He'd be dead. What, I mean, do you think that any of the ten lepers, if one of them had decided, I really I don't want to talk to the priest, well then, keep your leprosy. Notice, no one was healed until they were on their way to the priest. You got that? It's very important. They weren't healed, and then they took off to the priest. As they were going, they were all healed, and then noticed it, and then he stopped and turned around. It's just a principle of God. It's how God works. Verse 8. So Hezekiah said to Isaiah, what is the sign that the Lord will heal me? <laughs> oh, boy. And then I should go up to the house of the Lord the third day. So Hezekiah, he puts the fig on, you know. Now, the Bible's indication is that he's already healed, but he's struggling with this, you know. And because on the third day he's supposed to go and all. But the point is, God's already declared it. It's not like Hezekiah, you know, shouldn't know that. So if we if we were Old Testament saints and we were Hezekiah and Isaiah said something, whatever Isaiah said, you could take it to the bank. I mean, period. He's speaking on behalf of God. So if he says it, it is. But point is, so he needs clarification. Verse 9. Then Isaiah said. This is a sign to you from the Lord, that the Lord will do the thing which he has spoken. Shall the shadow go forward 10 degrees or go backward 10 degrees? And Hezekiah answered. So they're talking about the shadow that falls on the steps. It's like a sundial. That's how they tell uh, what time of day it is. And Hezekiah answers and says, well, it is an easy thing for the shadow to go down 10 degrees. Uh, no, but let the shadow go backward 10 degrees. So... Reverse time. Make the day stretch longer. And Hezekiah answered, or and Isaiah the prophet cried out to the Lord, and he brought the shadow ten degrees backwards by which it had gone down on the sundial of Ahaz. So his father made a sundial, which is really just a set of steps, and the way it fell on the steps, they could tell by what time it is. So last week, if you remember... We said God is not confined by time and space. Do you remember that? That's what we said. And again, our God is God over time. I mean, it's no problem for him to, to freeze time, to reverse time, to back up, make the earth spin backwards, whatever, whatever he wants to do, he can do it. That's not a problem for him. Psalm 139 says that... 
the Lord saw our substance when it was yet unformed, talking about uh, we're fearfully and wonderfully made. And in your book, our days were written or fashioned for me. It goes on to say before there were any. So God knows our days, right? So let's think about this. God knows when you're going to die, right? He knows your days. Is that right? Okay, so let me ask you a question. When you leave here and drive home tonight, are you going to wear a seatbelt? Why? If it's a foregone conclusion, then we all ought to go buy us a Harley and ride without a helmet and just woo. Huh? I mean, look, we've just covered this right here in Hezekiah. God knows when Tony's going to die. But you know what Tony, you know, you know what Tony's going to do? He's going to do every simple, practical thing he can do to sustain his life. Yes. Because those are opportunities to obey. In other words, God, God's sovereignty doesn't, uh, God's sovereignty is what it is. And we have responsibility and it is what it is. But in this case, it would be God's sovereignty and our stupidity. So if you, if you just, uh, if you, if you get a motorcycle and start riding around like a nut without a helmet, then you're probably going to have your days cut short. And you're going to say, wait a minute, I thought God was sovereign. I'm going to say, yeah, he knew you were going to be an idiot and ride around without a helmet. Did God make you get a motorcycle and ride without a helmet? No. But did he know you were going to do that? Yes. So, you know, lest you get a headache, with uh, uh, this is what you got to understand. You and I have a responsibility to do the things that we should do. So, so when you get sick, basically, what did Hezekiah do when he got sick? What did Isaiah do? Isaiah put medicine on his boil. That's exactly what happened. Now, did the medicine heal Hezekiah? No, God did but what did God use to heal him? Medicine. So when you go to the doctor and you're, you have cancer and the doctor prescribes this treatment and the cancer goes away, then did the medicine heal you? Did the doctor heal you? Or did God heal you? God uses practical, ordinary things. Who do you think is the God behind medicine? Who do you think is the God that gives the doctor the wisdom to know what to do? You understand? So if you go to the doctor, so this is the problem. You got a bunch of wackos out there who say, no, no, I have such faith in God. I don't go to doctors. No, you're a moron. And your days are going to be cut short for your stupidity. And it's the same thing if you ride around without wearing a seatbelt. It's the same thing if you don't wear a helmet. God used medicine to heal Hezekiah, 
Because it's an opportunity for obedience. It doesn't mean that, that you put your ultimate hope in this or your ultimate, you know, you're, we're not saying that our hope is in something other than God. We're, whatever it is, we know the one who's behind that, that makes that available, that makes that possible. And so when God puts simple, practical things in your life, okay, so, I mean, we could talk about this all night because there's so many ways this applies. You can't just say, well, I'm just going to live any way I want to because God's sovereign. I'm just going to eat anything I want to because God's sovereign. You can't do that. You have a responsibility to be a steward of what you have. And so, I mean, I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but look, God provided broccoli. you got to eat some. That's how it goes. So he's the God over time. So the, the, the response to this understanding, it needs to be, well, am I being a good steward of the time God's given me? So we're not just talking about Hezekiah. There's, there's one thing every single person in this room right now has in common with Hezekiah. Every single person. What is it? Every one of us has been given by grace 15 years. There's not a person in here that wasn't alive 15 years ago. So what have you done with the last 15 years? What have you done with it? And the better question is, what are you going to do if you get 15 more, what are you going to do with it? How are you going to steward that time? You can't just, listen, you can't, you can't just lull yourself to sleep. You can't just walk around numb. You can't just let days just trickle by like they don't matter. You can't just lollygag through life. These are days that God's given you. And when they're gone, they're gone. They're a, a very precious resource. And it's interesting that if we knew that we only had 15 years, a lot of us in this room who feel like we've got, there's a lot of people who would think they had more than 15 years. So if you knew you had only 15 more years and then you were going to die, You'd be very, very focused on what you did with that time. That's pitiful if you're not doing it now. It's pitiful. How, well, how does that change anything? We should live that way all the time. What are we going to do with the time that God's given us? Now, this is the thing that I want you to understand. This next blank circle it. Make a circle around it. I want you to drive this into your heart. Prosperity is a test. Now, of course, everything that comes into the life of a believer is a test. The problem is, is that we always receive adversity as a test. 
but we rarely receive prosperity as a test, and it is 100% a test. So look at what happens in Hezekiah's life. At that time, Barak Baladan, the, the son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent letters and a present to Hezekiah, for he had heard that Hezekiah had been sick. And so Hezekiah was attentive to him and showed them all the house of his treasures, his silver and his gold and spices and precious ointments, and all of his armory and all that was found among the treasures. There was nothing in his house or in all of his dominion that Hezekiah did not show them. Then Isaiah the prophet went to King Hezekiah and he said to him, What did these men say? And from where did they come to you? And Hezekiah said, well, they've come from a far country, from Babylon. And Isaiah said, well, what have they seen in your house? And Hezekiah said, well, they have seen all that is in my house. There's nothing among my treasures that I have not shown them. That's dumb. And Isaiah said to Hezekiah, hear the word of the Lord. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and what your fathers have accumulated until this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And they shall take away some of your sons who are descendants from you, who, whom you will beget. And they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. That's bad. Now, did God cause Hezekiah to show the Babylonians all of his stuff? No. But he, he did it. And it was a really stupid thing to do. And it had consequences. And now, he just got 15 years added to his life. And he turns around and does this. And now he hears this terrible news. So what we see here is that Hezekiah had passed the test of adversity. But he failed the test of prosperity. You see, he, he responded great when there was 250,000 people coming to kill him or when he found out that he was going to die. But when things were good, see, in between those two times, there was good times. And in the good times, he turned around and he thought, man, I'm going to live for 15 years. Everything's great. So he starts just showing off all his stuff to everybody. See, Hezekiah's evil here wasn't his immorality. It wasn't murder or idolatry as we would formally see in most people's lives. It was just not leveraging his success to give glory to God. Notice if you read verse 12 all the way down to verse 18, it's all the house of his treasures. It's all of his armory. It's nothing that was in his house or his dominion. It's his treasures. It's his this. It's his that. He's parading them around and he's showing them all of his stuff, all the stuff he has, all the things he's done, all the things God's given him. It's his, 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 me, 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 me. And he's... And what have we said all along? What drives the heart of God? The glory of God. And so now... Instead of praying to give glory to God, he's stealing glory from God and taking it for himself. How much has God done for you? And how much has he done for you? 
How good has he been to you? Look at 2 Chronicles 32. We get, we, we get understanding from Chronicles exactly what happened. In those days Hezekiah became sick and was at the point of death. And he prayed to the Lord and he answered him and gave him a sign. And then the explanation. But Hezekiah did not make return according to the benefit done him. For his heart was proud. Therefore wrath came upon him and Judah and Jerusalem. See that? See, tragically... Many of God's people forget that God's blessing us is to be a blessing. Remember, a few Sundays ago, it was 4th of July, and I stood up and said, and you know, it's like my wife tells me, she's like, Tony, you have the gift of being a bummer. I'm like, well, it's the truth. See, instead of jumping around happy 4th of July, my, my message is, hey, why do you think God lets you live in a free country? Before we start shooting off fireworks and everybody starts waving flags and getting all happy, why don't we just stop one second and go, wait a minute, why have I received this blessing? And what, what responsibility comes with it? But you know what we do? We just celebrate the fact that we're free. We're just happy that we're free. But that's, that negates the giver. Freedom is given to be a blessing to others. That's the reason that it's given. To whom much is given, much is expected. Luke chapter 12, right? Yes. And nobody's been given more than us. And so we can't just be dancing. Now, can't, is it wrong to dance around? Absolutely not. You should be totally grateful for what you've been given, but under the recognition of the responsibility that's with that. And if you're not, if you're not being a steward of it, then you should not celebrate it. That's offensive to God, and it really aggravates the snot out of me. Big time. So now we have this big pronouncement that because he's paraded everything and stolen all this glory from God, that everything's going to get smashed by Babylon and carried away. And even his descendants, some of his children, grandchildren, and so forth, are going to be uh, serving as eunuchs in the palace. That's pretty devastating news. So Hezekiah's response in verse 19. So Hezekiah says to Isaiah, after hearing this, The word of the Lord which you have spoken is good. For he said, Will there not be peace and truth at least in my days? Now, right here, Something's happening. And there's going to be people who are going to say, this is what they're going to say. They're going to say Hezekiah was a great and godly king, which he was, 
But because of that, uh, what verse 19 means is that Hezekiah is accepting that it's God's word and God's will, and he's accepting that that's what um, is going to be the decree. And so basically what Hezekiah is saying, well, look, if that's God's will, then I'm happy with it. That ain't what's happening. That's wrong. If you look closely at what he says, his response to this devastating news is it's good and the explanation for the goodness of it is that none of this trouble is going to come in his lifetime. You see that? That's what he's happy about. Forget the fact that my children and my grandchildren and my offspring are going to be eunuchs. Forget the fact that the whole land that I rule over and all the people that I love are going to get run over and, and taken off into Babylon. Forget all that. But what's good is, is that I don't have to deal with any of that. That's going to be somebody else's problem. And here's where I take exception to the people who try to say that this is a godly response of Hezekiah. You just have to be a student of people. And you just have to think about what you already know to be true about Hezekiah. You see, Hezekiah parades all these Babylonians around and shows them all the stuff and takes credit for it. And then immediately Isaiah shows up, questions him about it. See, he doesn't think he's done anything wrong. And then Isaiah says, you shouldn't have done that. And because you did this, this devastating thing is going to happen. And then he turns right around and he makes this response. Now, is there, is there any repentance? Is there any remorse? Now, hold on a second. When Hezekiah, in the very first verse of chapter 20, when he found out that he was sick and he was going to die, what was his physical response to that news? What did he do? He wept bitterly, right? He, he wept bitterly. So what do we know about Hezekiah? That he is a crier and that he responds emotionally to bad news. We have precedent of that. We've seen that when we study his life. Now he just received bad news. And you know what he says? Well, that's good. That's not the response you should have. He's completely deflecting and saying, you know what? I'm not going to have to deal with it. That's exactly what's going on. That's terrible, isn't it? Yes, it's horrible. And we would never do that, would we? We would never live in such a way now as to supply our needs or our comforts but deflect payment on the generation to come. Would we do that? We wouldn't do that, would we? We wouldn't amass a deficit that we know we'll never have to pay and dump it off on the generation to come. We wouldn't do that, would we? We are the poster children 
The United States of America is the poster child of the Hezekiah principle right here. Whatever is good for me, forget who comes next. To hell with my kids and my grandkids and the kids to come and down the line and down the line. Just, but let's just pay it out now. Let's just live now. Let's, we don't want to do anything hard knowing somebody's got to pay the debt. But it's not our problem. And listen, this, this isn't, we, we're not all sitting in this room just going, you know, yeah, that's the problem, you know, and it's everybody's problem in Washington, D.C. Oh, no. No, 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 no. Spiritually, the same thing is true. You look at the state of the church today. Who dropped the ball? The generation before us. Don't you start bemoaning the state of the situation that your kids are going to grow up in. Whose job is it? Whose responsibility is it? It's our job. But you know, it's a complicated problem and probably a complicated answer, but I know some simple, I know some simple giant components to the equation. You show me a generation of Christians that haven't developed a pattern in their life of crying out to God and asking God and through an intimate relationship. Hmm. Yeah. See, when God's people stop praying fervently and desperately and consistently, what do you think's going to happen? I mean, how do you how could we possibly expect it to go any other way? I'm back to the question I asked earlier. Well, what are you asking for? I mean, really, what are you asking for? What are you pleading with God, begging God? When was the last time you just laid on the floor and wept for God to move, to do something, to change something, to save somebody? I mean, beg God in desperation that it won't happen if God doesn't do it. And we're wandering around like a bunch of zombies, wondering why everything's falling apart. It's because we are not seeking the face of God. And when it doesn't go our way, we get angry and we get bitter and we get distant. And it proves that our heart's been wrong all along. We should be pleading with God continuously. Because it, look, prosperity is a test, but look, prosperity is, a, is an illusion. It's an illusion. It's not even real. Prosperity is not real. It's not real. I mean, we run around. Think about, think about how deceived we are. We're so full of the world. And we, you don't think this damages you spiritually, but when you talk about how great the economy is. That has spiritual implications in your heart. Is the economy great? Is it? 
How can an economy be great when we're mortgaging the future of generations to come? Can I ask that question? How can it be great? It cannot be great. If it's great, then we're debt-free. So it's not great. Now, but when we say it's great, we convince ourselves into living as if it's great, and therefore we're not seeking God in desperation. It's not great. It's an illusion. If you just think everything's going fine, you are blind. It's not going fine. But you know, at least there'll be peace in my days. No. May it not be so. So the Bible says the rest of the acts of Hezekiah, all of his might, and how he made a pool, a tunnel, and brought water into the city. And that was not written in the books of the Chronicles and Kings of Judah. So Hezekiah rested with his fathers, and Manasseh, his son, reigned in his place. Now listen. That's just a reference to the fact that he created an aqueduct before they surrounded the city with 250 men. He was smart enough to divert water flow underground. You can read about it. It's a fascinating story of human ingenuity. You can go to Jerusalem today and you can walk in it. It's still there. That's not the point. So Hezekiah dies. And yeah, there's peace for the rest of his life. And then comes his son, Manasseh. The most wicked king who ever lived. Number one on the wickedness scale. His son. If you read the first verse of chapter 21, here's what it says. Now Manasseh became king of Judah, and he was 12 years old. Does that mean anything to you? He was 12 years old. So that means that when God gave Hezekiah 15 years of grace, he didn't have a son. So his son was born during those 15 years. And again, people try to say, well, no, that's not what happened that his son co-ruled with him for a while, and then it was the 12 years, and that's because they just can't seem to wrap their head around the sovereignty of God. Because you see, if Manasseh, if Manasseh would not have been born, if, if Hezekiah wouldn't have prayed and got 15 more years, then he didn't have a son, and he would have died without a son, then the line of David would have been broken, which God promised would never happen, right? Which is not a problem. 
What I'm trying to get you to see is that God's plan is never threatened by us. Never. God knows what's going to happen. But we're responsible for what we do. And so Hezekiah, just like when you get to the end of every king you can study in the Bible, it's just a glaring reminder that we need a greater king. That every human leader is insufficient. They don't have what it takes. And they're just, they're just shadows of one who will come and walk perfectly with the God of the universe. He won't deviate ever in any way, shape, or form. He will obey God perfectly. And He'll do that so that He could satisfy our debt and overcome sin once and for all in our lives. And so we come tonight before this text and we realize that in Christ, what we've been given, what God's given us, Hezekiah couldn't even imagine what it would be like to sit where we are. He couldn't even imagine that. Can you imagine the way that Hezekiah felt every time Every time Isaiah walked up, every time he saw, he looked out the window and he saw Isaiah coming, every time somebody came and said, hey, the prophet's on his way in, he tensed up and everything got serious and, he, and there was this, this great, you know, maybe anticipation, but then also dread, not knowing, but knowing that whatever was about to happen was going to be big. Because this man who represented the voice of God was coming into his presence. I just want you to relate to how that would feel. You know, every time that this powerful king came in the presence of Isaiah, there was this tension and this, this, the, the realization of this is the voice of God. And we think of all the things that Hezekiah did and all the things that he accomplished. And he, and he made a difference. And he lived a, a, a great and faithful life, but it was far from perfect. And he didn't finish well. But he couldn't imagine what it would be like to be you. Because if you would have told him that there would come a day when the voice that speaks through Isaiah would inhabit people, He couldn't comprehend that. That wherever you go and whatever you do, that presence is with you. And that the promise of God would be that that presence, that person that's in me and in you would guide us into all truth. All truth. All truth. So I just want to say one last thing. I don't think tonight you need to leave here like frustrated on a mission to go home and to get a bunch of information so you can figure out what things you should be asking God for. 
No. I think you should leave here convicted that you need to get busy asking God. Because the Spirit of God within you will lead you to the truth that you need about God. The problem is not that we don't know. The problem is that we don't. Prosperity is an illusion. And God uses it to test us. To see what's real about us. See, every way that Hezekiah failed, well, King Jesus succeeds. And Jesus said, I am going to put my spirit in you. That's what he said. 